Welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole, a podcast by the prevention team at the Texas Council on Family Violence. On this podcast, we aim to deepen the conversation around violence prevention with discussions on the root causes and consequences of violence. Each week, we will go down a rabbit hole to critically examine a topic and how it relates to gender-based violence. These topics can be difficult and may be triggering for some listeners. As you listen along, please remember to take care of yourself and stop listening if you need to. If you would like more information about who we are or what we do at TCFV, please visit our website at tcfv.org. Now, let's get into it. Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm Sarah. And I'm William. And today, or this week, is the second week of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We are talking today with one of our other policy co-workers, Krista Delgallo, about domestic violence and pregnancy. Hi, Krista. Hi there. Great to be here with y'all. We're so excited about it. I have a couple questions before we dive into all the content that we are going to talk about. So the first question is, can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this work or found yourself at TCFE or whatever you want to share about that? Sure. Well, I started doing work with domestic violence and rape crisis centers in 1994. And so I feel like I have grown up personally and professionally in the movements and I've done a variety of different roles in terms of direct service in different parts of the country and then I came over to the Texas Council on Family Violence to do policy work in 2002 and have been here ever since and being at TCFE immediately gave me so much perspective over the advocacy that I had done prior and and it has really given me a lot more ideas about how I could have made that a little bit better. So it's nice to be able to to talk with advocates and hear what they're struggling with now and to to help and support them. And then I think working from the policy perspective is very different from working one on one with individuals, but you still have that satisfaction that you're helping to solve a problem that exists and that is an obstacle for survivors and create more opportunities for survivors, which is what advocates are doing every day. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. My second very important question is, do you have any strong food opinions? Many, but my, probably my strongest food opinion is that, well, I tend to not follow recipes. I'll look at a recipe to make sure I know what the basic ingredients might be if I'm not 100% sure, but particularly around measurements of garlic in recipes, because if a recipe says one clove of garlic, I'm going to put 10 cloves of garlic in there because I believe that everything could use a whole bulb. That's my strongest food. You have the whole bulb, might as well use it. Right. I mean, if I'm going to be cracking into that bulb of garlic, you might as well just keep peeling just keep going. And it's so good for you. It's a natural antibacterial. And it's also, I don't get eaten by mosquitoes. And I think it's my garlic consumption. I actually remember you talking about that in the office one time. And I was so sad. 
because I was like, mosquitoes love me and I would love to keep them away. But as someone who cannot eat garlic, that doesn't work for me. Also, as someone who cannot eat garlic, I would agree that the whole bulb would be better because it does make everything taste better. So before we jump into the content of this episode, we did want to give a trigger warning that we will be talking about the intersection of pregnancy and domestic violence and may get into some stories or details. Just remember to take care of yourself as you're listening along. So Krista, why is having this conversation about DV and pregnancy important? Well, it's important for a whole host of reasons, but I think particularly because we know that pregnant women are more vulnerable to violence and abuse in their relationships. And we also know that violence and abuse during a pregnancy can really affect not only the pregnant mother, but also the the baby and the outcome of that pregnancy. And we've learned so much over the last decade and continue to learn more about brain science and healthy brain development and just how critically important those prenatal months and those first couple years are for healthy development and particularly healthy brain development in babies. And so the presence of violence or abuse during pregnancy impacts obviously all of that and is highly concerning, not only for the safety of that pregnant woman, but also for the safety and the ongoing well-being of babies. Yeah. And, you know, we do this work, we, we talk routinely about why pregnancy is a risk factor for domestic violence and why domestic violence is a risk factor for unplanned pregnancy. And so just having a conversation for a second about that for people who may not have thought about it before or may not understand why why those dual risk factors exist. But one of the things is certainly that another human being in the picture can pull attention or lessen a perpetrator's control over their victim. And so they see it as a threat to that power and control. We've talked in a previous episode about how abuse isn't about anger. It's not about drugs or alcohol. It's about one person having power and control over another. And, and pregnancy really complicates that because you have a whole nother person being involved, right, with the baby. And then you have, in the, in the best circumstances, you have prenatal care, you have people that are all excited about the baby. And so like pregnancy tends to pull family members and friends closer. So it makes it harder for that abuser, that perpetrator to exert that power and control. I would offer as well that pregnancy may present an opportunity to people who use abuse and violence to just further isolate victims that are their partners and to utilize the pregnancy as the rationale for the rulemaking and the dominance and the control that the abusive partner is putting over the pregnant victim. And so I think it serves as this sort of almost a breeding ground, like you said, William. And also pregnancy is about the creation of another human being and there's all of that, but it's also a legal relationship that is formed. So you might have two individuals that may not be married. They might not be legally tethered to one another, but once they have a child together, 
if paternity is established, there is an ongoing legal connection between all three parties that is very difficult to break. And can be like further wielded by the abuser to control both the the mom and the baby. Absolutely. Absolutely. Krista, you mentioned establishing paternity. Do you mind just kind of doing a brief overview of what that is and what that looks like? Sure. So in the state of Texas, if there is a child born within a marriage or within 300 days of the dissolution or divorce, the paternity is presumed to be the husband or the ex-husband. In the case that there's not a marital relationship, then there's a couple things that can happen. A father could sign an acknowledgement of paternity during the pregnancy, but certainly, and if anybody has given birth in Texas and has had one of the birth registrars come by, particularly if we're not married at the time of birth, they also bring the acknowledgement of paternities around to fill out with that birth certificate and with the acknowledgement of paternity, which is a document that quite often mothers and fathers are completing the day after the delivery of a baby and in a hospital room with sometimes very little information, they are legally adjudicating fatherhood of that baby and all rights and responsibilities that come with parentage in Texas. And that's extraordinarily significant. And most people the day after they have a baby do not feel that they're in the position where they could ask for some more time or think it through or get more information, especially if the dad's in the room. And there's also a a connection where if the acknowledgement of paternity isn't completed in the hospital and submitted at the same time the birth information is completed, then the first issuance of the birth certificate is not going to include the other parent's name. And that really weighs heavy on a lot of parents and leads to a lot of pressure to get a name on the birth certificate. So there's just so much around how we establish paternity in Texas that is rife for coercion and and manipulation. And even there's been some great research that's been done by the Child Family Research Partnership over at the University of Texas on paternity establishment. And their recommendation was if there are any issues, but particularly if there was any issues around intimate partner violence, in-hospital paternity establishment is not appropriate. Because when you establish paternity in the hospital, you're establishing parentage, and that means that that other parent has the same exact rights and responsibilities to that baby as as the mother does without any structure, because there's no custody agreement in there. It's just you can take the baby whenever you want, and she can take the baby whenever you want. So until you actually get some legal structure in there, there's not really rights that a victim parent could assert. Yeah, and we know that domestic violence kills more pregnant women than any other cause. So like out of the pregnant women that die every year, domestic violence has killed a higher percentage of them than any other Rx or anything else. And so we, we know it's a serious issue. We know that advocates across the country, both in domestic violence programs as well as in like hospitals, are seeing this issue and having to respond to it and 
you know, it's one of those things that can really galvanize people because pregnant women are considered a, a vulnerable population. And so more vulnerable, I guess, uh, an additional vulnerability compared to domestic violence victims that aren't pregnant. And and so people can get really emotional or really gal- like I said, galvanized around this issue. But we also know that if a woman is being abused, the likelihood that uh, that abuse would continue after pregnancy or into pregnancy is pretty high, right? And of course, like we've talked about in another episode, we're, we're not just talking about physical abuse. You know, domestic violence has many faces. And so it's not, it's not just about physical dominance over your partner. One of the interesting, not interesting, but one of the tools that an abuser uses is often around family planning, right? So we have sabotaging birth control, other forms of reproductive coercion, whether it is, if you love me, you'll have my baby, comments like that, or if it's, um, which then leads to all the legal issues that Krista just explored and gets into what might be considered stealthing, right? Removing a condom without your partner knowing to sexual assault and just not allowing someone to have an active role in planning their family. And that can lead to other complications, right? So we, Krista talked about the legal issues, but also Krista, there are economic issues, right? When it comes to family planning and the intersection of that with domestic violence. There are absolute economic consequences associated with family planning. And it's an interesting intersection because I did advocacy with survivors and their families for a really long time and really shied away from genuine questions and conversations about family planning because I could tell that either because of how I was asking the conversation or framing the conversation, the survivors I was working with just by and large weren't comfortable having those discussions with me. And I wasn't savvy enough to know how to guide towards towards having some real authentic conversations that led people to making their own choices and to the resources that they needed to be connected with in order to actualize those choices. But one of the things that I've always thought about is that in my direct advocacy, I worked exclusively with poor women headed households. And then when I started work at TCFE, I did the lion's share of the policy work around anti-poverty. And I failed to make that direct connection that really where you fall in terms of how well off you are has to do with two things. It has to do with how much income you're generating, like your income and your assets, and then the size of your family. So I could help a survivor to go through school and get a certification and get a pretty well-paying job. Say she makes $50,000. A $50,000 family income is going to be very different and be felt very differently with a family of two with just one child than with a family of four children. So you've got a family of five. So you might almost be at federal poverty at that level. So so making those direct connections between family size and assets and wealth and how those really color how your family experiences any sort of resources that are coming in is really important. 
And most people, when you ask them if they want to become pregnant in the next six months, in the next year, are going to say no. But I just wasn't asking the question like that. And so it didn't allow me to then go to the second step and like, how can I help you in fulfilling your goal of not getting pregnant, right? And so, and particularly because of something we'll talk about more around reproductive coercion, that survivors have so often had very little choice in family size and birth spacing that really putting this back on them and letting them have their own agency to really think. And maybe somebody says, hey, I just always wanted a big family. Like, that's how I feel better. But at least it's their choice that they're going into and it's not something that's being sort of taken from them or that they don't have enough information or support or the resources to act differently. It's something that they actually are are choosing and they're understanding the consequences. A large family size with maybe a smaller income or, or vice versa. Yeah, it's all about empowering the survivor in ways that they may not have been empowered before when their abuser was forcing things on them or coercing them into particular decisions or situations. And so really allowing that survivor to embrace that autonomy and that their own power in determining the trajectory of their life moving forward. So real quick, I don't mean to derail us, but Krista, I think you have a friend in the background when you're talking. Would you like to introduce this little kitten that you have? Yes, I have a little kitten, very new to me. I've only had her for... It's right behind you. Where? On the pillow. You can see it. Kitty cat. She's eight weeks old and she's been in our family for about eight days. And she's extremely cute and her meows are really, really, really sweet. And what is her name? Her name is Kittika. I like it. How did you choose that name? It's the kitten version of Latika. Okay, nice. (laughs) Very long story. (laughs) I'll trust you on that. We can get back to our normal conversation, but there was no way to edit out the little kitten meows. So I thought we might as well bring her in. She's so cute. She is so tiny. So we talked a little bit about the economic consequences. There are other health consequences as well. So intimate partner violence during pregnancy is is linked to a whole host of behavioral health and physical health consequences for both the mom and the baby, including depression and substance abuse, smoking, anemia, low birth weight, a preterm birth, which then can lead to developmental concerns for the baby, preeclampsia, like that's not a developmental concern for the baby, but that's another condition that the mom can have. And so all of these health issues, this whole host and list of health issues are tied to experiencing intimate partner violence during pregnancy. So we, we know that it's a serious issue that that often goes unnoticed, right? So these, these issues exist, but tying them to intimate partner violence is sometimes difficult depending on how the questions that physicians are asking or nurses are asking. So having that conversation or being in a safe space in your doctor's office in order to have that conversation is really important for survivors when they go to those prenatal visits. And it's important for providers to be able to skillfully have those conversations and to separate the pregnant person from their partner because 
often, you know, I feel like I see people that go, they get their ultrasounds and it's the couple together in the visit and they're, they're always together because like, you know, the, the concept that like, this is a life they created together and it's a health thing for the baby. And so both parents are there. And so being able to separate the, the pregnant person from their partner is, is a really important time because it's also about their, their personal health, right? Their confidentiality and those opportunities to, to talk about issues that may be impacted by the other partner. And, and things like that can be tool of reproductive coercion, right? And not allowing someone to visit their doctor on their own, right? Or not allowing someone to visit their doctor at all. Eliminating prenatal visits or severely reducing them, not allowing them to pick up their vitamins from the pharmacy are certainly tools in, in the reproductive coercion realm. We, we talked earlier about birth control sabotage and the way that that can, can look. Also not allowing condom negotiation, obviously like before pregnancy, and things like just not allowing someone to choose their birth control method, right? Saying you have to be on the pill as opposed to an implant or an IUD, the the... William, real quick, I feel like you're making a lot of great points and there are a lot. So I'm going to request that we break it down a little bit because you originally started talking about like healthcare workers and how they can help or what that can look like. Let's stop there and talk about that a little bit. So certainly, again, making sure that the pregnant person is able to have at least part of that visit on their own and asking the important questions around their health and safety. Also, if it is pre-pregnancy, like there's there's not a pregnancy involved, going to what Krista was saying earlier, she was saying it from more of an advocate's perspective, but also healthcare providers should be asking what people's family planning plans are around like, do you want to become pregnant or do you want your partner to become pregnant in the next year? And then not just leaving it there, but then working with them to like establish, well, how are you going to achieve that goal? Like if you don't want to become pregnant, how are you going to avoid pregnancy? If you do want to become pregnant, what are the things that are going to help you achieve that goal, right? Really allowing the individual to drive that conversation. And I think one thing to note is asking these questions to people of all ages, whether we know if they're in a relationship or not. So like young people who are going to their OBGYN or, you know, people of all ages, like I said, but I often hear stories about nurses or doctors, you know, pulling people aside or taking them in the bathroom and asking them if they're okay to kind of get away from that perpetrator. But in those stories, it's always primarily like middle-aged to older women. So I think what I'm trying to get at is like, it's important to ask all people that and just kind of do a check-in and have, as you said it, not here, but with me before that universal education or questions. Yeah. So we definitely don't want advocates or um, healthcare providers to, we really want to try to get away from disclosure driven practice, right? To where you're expecting someone to say, I am experiencing domestic violence. Please give me resources, right? Like you, you, we really want to avoid that dynamic. We really want to lean into universal education and saying every person that comes into your practice or your shelter or your program is educated about the resources that are available to them. That way, A, you're avoiding that like they have to build up the trust with you to really make sure you're a safe person because that can take time. 
you're avoiding the potential of the the abusive partner is there you're establishing that this is a normal thing we give to every patient that comes through these doors or every client that comes through these doors we just want to make sure this information is out there and so it's not like there's something about you or your relationship that is suspicious and so we're giving it to everyone and it's also like if someone is not experiencing domestic violence that doesn't mean that they don't know somebody who is right then that it's a tool now that we're empowering so many people to share resources which will hopefully drive people to programs and, and safety so definitely universal education is what we want to we want to lean into and it can be hard because it is another thing that you've got to we encourage you to talk to every person that comes through your door with. And it does take a little time, but maybe it's not even a conversation. A conversation is obviously preferable. We want that, but maybe it's putting in a pamphlet or uh, a palm card or just a piece of paper that has resources listed on it. And it's included in every new patient packet or every discharge packet. You know, you got to go back up to the the front window with a receptionist and sign out or, you know, make your next appointment or whatever. And maybe it's something that that person just gives everybody as they're leaving. And so certainly now during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we we really want to see those kind of initiatives in all kinds of places. We want we want nurses and doctors to be wearing purple because that's the advocacy color this month. But we also want them to have resources posted up in their offices. And but we, we would like to see that throughout the year, not just during October. Yeah. Thank you. I think the next thing you were talking about after healthcare was reproductive coercion. Yes. We're thinking about reproductive coercion and sexual coercion in the context of intimate relationships. It's really important that both healthcare providers are cognizant of this potential dynamic and talking with their patients and safety planning on their end in terms of what a more effective and safe method for family planning might be for a given patient. And you also have the safety planning that advocates at our programs are doing that needs to include how the safety plan is addressing reproductive coercion that's happening or that might come up and that in having these conversations as advocates or as prevention workers with survivors and with the community at large, even if it's not a current issue for someone, they are then better informed and know what to do if they find themselves in that kind of a situation or have friends or family that are in a situation where there is sexual coercion. Yeah. And one, one other note, because you because you mentioned reproductive and sexual coercion and often reproductive coercion is a term that gets used and it doesn't just mean around pregnancy. And I just want to make that clear like it. And so so some of us are trying to start using the word sexual coercion a little more, but it has to do with your reproductive organs, your reproductive tract, like all of those things and not just pregnancy. Um, so anybody can experience reproductive coercion regardless of their gender and they can experience it from someone of any gender too, right? So just like we talk about domestic violence in these terms that there's no standard perpetrator, there's no standard victim. It's the same with reproductive coercion, sexual coercion. And so certainly when we're this conversation as a whole, when we're talking about pregnancy, we're talking about people with uteruses. Could you maybe provide a few examples of what that could look like when we're not specifically talking about people getting pregnant? 
that includes sexual coercion. And, you know, there's a lot of times folks are using protection not to protect against pregnancy, but against STIs. And so, and obviously having an, an STI can really impact a pregnancy, right? Because don't you have to go under like different, like, you know, most, most, most HIV positive women, like their babies are not HIV positive, but the doctors have to really attend to mm-hmm. that, right? And then there's something else that if someone is positive and may, I don't know if it's only if they're having a flare-up but like when the baby comes to the birth canal it can cause blindness but I forget which which one it is it's chlamydia it's chlamydia mm-hmm. which is like the most common thing ever and so if somebody has had a hard time negotiating condom use they probably have chlamydia like and if they're not going you know they're not being tested and stuff it's a, you know and if they're not negoti- able to negotiate condoms you've got hpv right and yeah. if they're not that they're not having access right. to the vaccine then you've got a higher mm-hmm. risk for cancer later for women and so yeah it's absolutely not just about pregnancy certainly pregnancy has a lot of implications and a lot of concern health concerns and considerations to come around uh, that come along with it but it's not just about pregnancy so something that you mentioned earlier sarah was that this conversation is not just for adults that healthcare providers should not just be talking to pregnant adults about this but this conversation is also something we should be engaging young people sarah did you want to say more about how we should be having this conversation with young people Yeah, I think it's important to have these conversations with young people as much as especially in Texas, we don't want to acknowledge that young people are sexually active. They are. So what comes to mind is that like, obviously, sexual and reproductive coercion can affect people under the age of 18. And it does affect people under the age of 18. Specifically why I brought up that with like the healthcare providers is because young people face a lot of discrimination when it comes to sexual activity in general. But if we talk about pregnant teens, they face a lot of struggles, including making decisions, being informed on their rights, being informed on their responsibilities, because we don't often have those conversations. It reminds me of in Texas for the first time in 20 years, we are we looking at our health knowledge and essential skills that we teach in schools. And I just wanted to read this quote real fast because I thought it was funny, but it also sums up our gap in education for young people. So one of the people on the State Board of Education who decides what we teach in schools. Krista, prepare yourself for this quote if you haven't heard it yet. So we should not be teaching consent because one of the State Board members said that pedophiles and sex traffickers use consent as a gateway term to prey on youth, despite the fact that we know that's just like not true. So this person is saying we shouldn't talk about consent because then ultimately it's going to lead to young people being trafficked or hurt more often. And that shows a lack of understanding of what consent is and where we are at on discussing rights and responsibilities with young people. So as a teen mom, this is like a passionate area of mine, I would say. When I worked as a peer educator with other teen moms, they all experienced such similar situations, maybe some unhealthy relationship aspects, but also so much discrimination within the healthcare system 
I remember specifically one story of this mom. I think she was 16, maybe 17. And her baby was taken away from her the day she delivered because it had some health problems. And when she asked the doctor what was happening, he said, don't worry about it. You're too young to handle this. Something along those lines. And so... Again, as someone who was a teen mom and who did experience some, uh, like some abuse in that relationship, it's impossibly hard to navigate what you're supposed to do and what's right and what's there for you and to navigate those resources. And because we often classify domestic violence as like an adult married problem almost, young people tend to think like, oh, I must not be experiencing that. So therefore the domestic violence information that is on a billboard or posted in the bathroom doesn't apply here, right? So I'm just curious on y'all's thoughts on young people, especially young pregnant people and the conversation we're having. Yeah, so we know that pregnant adolescents experience intimate partner violence at a higher rate than pregnant adults. It certainly is a problem for young people. We also know that young people are at higher risk for repeat pregnancies, particularly rapid repeat pregnancy. So having another pregnancy within a year of the pregnancy before uh, or within a year of delivery, I guess. And Texas leads the nation in repeat pregnancies, teen repeat pregnancies specifically. And it's another symptom of an abusive relationship, right? Not allowing someone to determine their birth spacing or just disregarding their health, right? So often women who have delivered, there is theoretically a healthy period of time to where you should not be engaged in in sex. And often abusers are like, nah, those doctors don't know what they're talking about. This is something that I want to do so and and disregard that health advice from medical professionals. So you get these back-to-back pregnancies, which then going back to what Krista was saying earlier about economics and family planning, it just compounds that issue with every pregnancy. So that's another risk factor in the, in the realm of, of young people is this repeat teen pregnancy. So, and young people certainly were not giving them comprehensive sex education, at least not in Texas. We often don't give them appropriate information or access to contraceptives. So they don't know where to get them or how to use them. And that all of that builds up a risk for, for pregnancy. And then you have, um, like we said at the very beginning, an unplanned pregnancy is a risk factor for intimate partner violence and intimate partner violence is a risk factor for unplanned pregnancy, right? It's this cyclical thing. So by not allowing young people to have access to the information, not even, not even, we're not even talking about necessarily the physical contraceptives, although we're also talking about that, but just the information around how to keep themselves safe, how to advocate for themselves, how to negotiate condom use, just to know about condoms generally. And in like Crystal was saying a second ago, not even just for pregnancy, but also for STIs, so much information that young people, we could empower young people with to help address this issue and we can't even teach them about consent because 
the State Board of Education, many of whom expressed in those hearings that they weren't sure what consent really meant. And so, of course, we can't teach it to young people, even though these full grown adults still don't have a clear concept of what consent means. So which just goes to show how much larger the education problem is. So even as an older woman now, I guess, you know, there's still so much I'm learning because we don't have these conversations and we don't we don't still talk about it and we don't educate people. And so even with doctors saying like, after you have a kid, wait so long to have sex again. Sometimes there's no really reasoning why they're not talked about. We don't have that conversation too. And so my point with that is there's just a lack of knowledge on so many different levels and in so many different areas, it just becomes an even larger problem. I guess my question is for you, Krista, what is Texas doing or what are we doing about domestic violence and pregnancy? Great question. In 2013, which was on the heels of TCFE having a grant from the Office of Women's Health called Project Connect, where we did a good amount of work with both family planning clinics, healthcare leadership across the state, and with home visitation programs. We took all that work and what we learned, and during the legislative session, we worked on a bill that created a task force to examine the healthcare system's response to pregnant and postpartum survivors of intimate partner violence. And the experience of that task force was extraordinarily enriching. Our CEO, Gloria Terry, was a co-chair to the task force and Dr. Jeff Temple was the other co-chair. He is out of the University of Texas medical branch within their department of obstetrics and gynecology. And we had just a whole host of other providers, representatives from big medical associations like the Texas Medical Association, like the Texas Nurses Association. We had nurse researchers, we had teaching docs and nurses and folks from different state agencies, particularly Health and Human Services Commission and the Department of State Health Services, to really grapple with this issue and talk about what do we know and what are some potential solutions and strategies moving forward. And so that task force did produce a report that was submitted to the Health and Human Services Commission and to the legislature. And I love to unearth that report on a regular basis just to make sure that intimate partner violence and the issues of coercion and abuse continue to be front of mind when people are talking about perinatal health and maternal child health. And so we, we have that. We haven't gone too much farther policy-wise since then, but TCFE is a member of the Texas Women's Health Care Coalition, and we work in partnership with that coalition and with other groups to continue to ensure that women's health is adequately funded at the state level and that survivors have access to either the healthcare coverage or the healthcare services that they need. And that means really staying on top and monitoring 
policies that are in place and advocating for more expansive policies in terms of coverage and access, as well as understanding if there are safety me mechanisms or what the risks are of participation in a certain program for survivors. So for those of us who don't want to necessarily get involved in policy, because that is not how my brain works. <laughs> but what would you recommend for people who want to help and make sure that people have the healthcare they need, especially like concerning women and pregnant women? Just if folks continue to make these important connections, because a lot of times when people hear domestic violence, they just think about physical violence. They just think about a lot of times they're thinking about a criminal response and not seeing how so many different systems impact survivors. Yeah. And so that when you increase responsivity and access in a particular program that helps sort of everybody, that's really going to help survivors. So like if they expanded Medicaid so that more low income adults were able to be covered, we would have like survivors would have more opportunities for safety and access to quality care. A lot of times I don't think people understand why why a DV advocacy organization would be advocating for something like the Women's Health Program, which doesn't necessarily talk or speak to DV. Does that make sense? It's interesting though that you said that because thinking like you, you have a prevention mind and not necessarily a policy mind, but a prevention mind is astutely capable of making these very nuanced connections. And so that's why we need so many more people in the conversation, particularly in policy conversations, so that we're really getting a 360 perspective on issues and potential solutions. Yeah. And some of the stuff that you mentioned also was like postpartum care, which there has been policy updates around. And certainly that is not what we're talking about right now, but like is obviously connected to deviant pregnancy is like all of the postpartum care that is should be available for both mom and baby or, or parents and baby. And you have also the risk factors that come with that, whether it be depression or things that come along with like breastfeeding or not, like, and then the opportunities for an abuser to insert themselves into the postpartum care as well. So like, again, a different conversation from a different time, but going into that, like so many issues are interconnected. So it is an advocate's job, a domestic violence advocate's job to try to see these intersections when they're working with someone who is pregnant or just had a baby and trying to connect those links and those resources. And same thing for a, a medical provider to just say like, oh, you're experiencing domestic violence. Here are all the potential consequences from a healthcare perspective. So it does get a little overwhelming, especially like if you're if you're a survivor and you are pregnant or you are postpartum or, you know, you, you just have children or you're just a survivor. Like there's all of these interlinked systems that impact your ability to access safety. So the last thing we want to talk about today is healthcare is about domestic violence day. Tomorrow, October 14th is HCADV, which is healthcare is about domestic violence day. It happens every October and it is a day where we really encourage people in the healthcare profession, allied health professionals 
to engage in Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And they can do that in a multitude of ways. So Futures Without Violence puts a toolkit out every year with ideas of what providers or patient care centers can do. Those ideas range from the smallest thing about just having conversations with your colleagues about domestic violence to things like changing all of your computer screensavers to hotline numbers or local resources about domestic violence to hanging posters up in your office. Um to having big campaigns or presentations for staff or patients around the issue. So it's a day of action. It's a day of engagement that we really encourage healthcare providers, not only in Texas, but around the country to engage in and expand their view of domestic violence and really engage in change and advocacy. So you can learn more about healthcare's about domestic violence day online. You can just Google it. There is a whole webpage on Futures Without Violence's website that you can find the toolkit that William just mentioned and more information about HCADV. It's also a great opportunity to just take that first step. So if you're a medical provider, Maybe you haven't planned anything for HCADV because it's tomorrow, but maybe tomorrow is when you look into who the local domestic violence service provider is in your community and reach out or really look around your clinical setting and see if you do have information and resources available that communicate that you're a safe and informed space for people to discuss relationship issues. And on the side of domestic violence programs, you know, this is a great day to do social media. There's going to be a Twitter town hall that Futures Without Violence is hosting tomorrow. It's a great day to just reach out. Certainly HCADV day is a great day to reach out to medical providers and other folks in the healthcare community, but all of Domestic Violence Awareness Month offers an opportunity and a great sort of fallback reason to initiate new partnerships. Absolutely. And of course, you don't even have to do it just in Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It can be an all year thing. But DVAM does give you that uh, that cover to do a cold call or something like that to, to invite people over. I mean, maybe not in COVID times, but say invite people over for like an open house to your program or something like that. Once COVID goes away, you can invite everybody over. But anyway, so it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We hope that everybody is wearing their purple and engaging in educational opportunities and advocacy opportunities and really exploring this issue and all of its connected issues and and how it is impacting people's lives. So we want to thank Krista for being here because we love Krista and having conversations with her. Krista, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Yeah, we hope to have you back sometime. Thanks so much. I love my prevention peeps. All right, bye. <laughs> bye.